was a little kid and I went on holiday, apparently the only thing that I would happily eat was marmalade sandwiches. Like Paddington Bear? Like Paddington Bear. Yeah. I don't know if it was associated with that. One of your many similarities with Paddington Bear, I would say. Did yes. your parents ever decide just to leave you at a train station and see where, <laughs> how far the simil- no, similarities went? No, they me up from one at the very beginning. Uh, no, that's one. Did you, did you eat anything weird when you were a kid and like refused to eat anything else? Have we done bourbon sandwiches before? A bourbon, as in a bourbon biscuit sandwich, yeah. rather than the. So when I was a kid, I was American. A big fan of bread. I continue to be a big fan of bread, and what I used to do was Kate finds this ridiculous and disgusting, is, is take a bourbon biscuit, and wrap it in bread that had been sort of padded down, and then eat it. It was a bourbon sandwich. That is pretty disgusting, and Just I don't understand why you needed to padded, pad down but the I, bread. Who knows why kids need to do anything. Why does my son feel the need to go up to the dog and hit him in the face every morning? <laughs> I've no idea. Because he knows that you love the dog more? I, I love the dog equally, <laughs> but, but even so, you don't see the dog hitting the baby in the face, so he does occasionally knock him down. <laughs> is, is, this is only ever retribution. It is never we, we proactively have, done. We've decided that preemptively that basically Hector's got a free hit on Edward. For all, he's, for all he's been put is, through. Is envy something, though, that dogs can feel? Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. Do yeah, they no. have that, Hector that emotion? Quite, Hector gets quite jealous. Right. He, um, yeah, if, you, if you're giving a lot of attention, certainly to another dog, if you meet another dog and are making friends with it. You would never do that, though. I would. That's, that's I like, essentially adultery. Though, I like it? all dogs. <laughs> but if, you, if you're saying hello to, to one of his friend dogs, he's got several dogs that are his friends. If you're saying hello to one of them, he does tend to, to kind of come up and give you a sort of, puts his, his snout on your knee and... Oh, really? Like, starts act, act, acting out and demanding attention. Yeah, dogs, yeah. dogs get jealous, really jealous. No, the, cat, the cats do as well. If, you, if you're spending too much time with one of the two cats, the other cat will, will essentially... Ask, ask for dinner. <laughs> Should we go out? Our relationship's not the same. <laughs> Pin you up against the wall and become abusive. No, the, uh, <laughs> the, the one, one cat in particular, if you're not giving him en- enough attention, just does this thing where it's, it's almost like you would imagine Marilyn Monroe to do a photo shoot in the, in the mid-1950s. He'd just basically kind of put his paws up above his head and kind of like oh, right? show his belly in this way. Kind of, and yeah, oh, like flooses is about. Aren't I cute? Don't you want to tickle me? Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. Yeah. You want to turn this down in favour of that? <laughs> this guy. This guy's got, <laughs> it, got it going on. <laughs> got it going on. Yeah. Uh, at, so, least, yeah. at least I know how to get uh, Hugh's attention during the course of this podcast <laughs> I think I'm getting my two penithin horrifying thought this is Set Piece Many the podcast where four friends talk football over food our food will be prepared post pod because we're meeting quite early and Steve it will be it will be omelettes there will be a choice of we have the constituent have... parts incidentally well, I got laid out in front of us like on Ready Steady Cook I, I got them out in preparation I thought you'd want to eat straight away there's chorizo there's ham there's cheese I can do onions mushroom whatever you want really just, uh, just say the word Will there be ketchup provided? No, because it's an omelette. There that is absolutely be no requirement to have ketchup I'll be, I'll be asking for ketchup. Joining me, Hugh Ferris, are Rory Smith of the New York Times, who is a beautiful shade of bronze after spending a lot of the sunny Easter weekend in West Yorkshire, and Stephen Wyeth of Match of the Day and BT Sport, who is not a beautiful shade of bronze because he only spent some of the Easter weekend in West Yorkshire. Uh, Annie Hinchcliffe is attending to family matters today. He cannot be with us, unfortunately, but we have replaced really his only enduring contribution to the pod with something from you, the audience, as we bring you a first ever listener soccer story. Amazing. Wow. Uh, this, we hope, will give birth to a recurring feature that recurs as often as Chinch is sojourning in the Algarve. Can I just say, I don't think enough has been made by either of you on air or off of the fact that I've managed to get a tan in the north of England. It's true. It is a genuine shade of bronze. I wrote that guessing because it only takes about 20 minutes for you because you are beautifully olive skinned. Absolutely. Um, Also, I do not wear sunscreen. (laughs) (laughs) Also, you are encouraging several deadly diseases. It was so glorious in Yorkshire over the weekend that I actually think it, it, it affected the crowd at Huddersfield. Really? Yeah, I think people didn't turn up. Because it was too sunny. Well, do you know, funny enough, <laughs> and I they certainly left early because it was too sunny. <laughs> I was at the. You're joking, Stephen. I was at the Manchester City Tottenham game, part three. I am bored of watching Manchester City play Tottenham. Let it never happen again. That clash of shirts. There's only so long you can Stop watch it. that for, isn't it? Stop oh, yes, it. That was the poor choices. Well, poor choices. Anyway, there was this. There was the. It, obviously, City won one 0 They scored early on. Blah blah blah. High stakes. All this. A lot of people said, "Oh, you know, the crowd felt very tense, and it, it felt like a really kind of." awkward occasion and everyone was on edge and I genuinely sit in the stadium think people were initially quite confused by the bright yellow orb in the sky and <laughs> after they got, they realised what it was by googling it on City's <laughs> excellent Wi-Fi they um, they ju- they were just sun- people were just sunbathing when it can be too hot in England or too sunny maybe not too hot but 
too sunny to play football because the fans can't take it seriously. It was too hot to watch football if you're in the sunshine on that particular occasion, yes. I saw you on the big screen. You looked you looked amazing. Really sweaty. Yeah. You were with... I did not get much shade. You were with who? Uh, at the time that you saw me, probably Nicholas and Elka. Yeah. And Ile Berkovic. Yeah. He's been doing a tour, Ile Berkovic. He's been at Blackburn. Oh, has he? I forgot that he He's delightful. Is he nice? Yes. Um, he 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 kept on you know cracking out a few one-liners. He was uh, is that right? He's almost prepared with his punchlines, uh, so he's very good. And Nicholas Anelka, uh, despite the fact that he is forty years of age and has retired from playing professional football, still feels the need to dress like a professional footballer. He, he was. I I was doing the radio at the time that Hugh came on the big screen, and I saw him bring bring someone on. And I know that generally it's it's a former player, but sometimes it can be a celebrity, a sort of yes, a, sometimes a famous fan. And I, I looked and I thought, I don't, because he was wearing a cap, and I thought, I don't recognise who that is. I didn't recognise Albertovich, and I don't want to be in, indiscreet or indelicate, but that might be because he's piled on a few pounds and, since uh, retirement. He's also shaved, shaved, his head. He's, uh, shaved his head. He's done that thing where most people, apart from Steve McLaren, do, where they give up yeah. and get rid of it all. But he's a slightly tubbier man now than he, he was. He's a slightly larger man. Yeah. But he is uh, in his late 40s. But Nicholas Anelka was dressed, though the person who turned out to be Nicholas Anelka was dressed in <laughs> such a way... He wasn't at the beginning. That, Reveal! That, you could, that he could only have been a footballer. And I assumed he was some sort of youth product who'd had to retire early and was still about 28 because he was dressed kind of in all denim, the Toronto tuxedo, and <laughs> like low slung trousers and some sort of... I think it was a dark shirt that he was wearing. He looked, he looked good in a certain way. He looked excellent. But, but I mean, at 40, come on, it's like chintz wearing super dry. The Toronto tuxedo thing is going to go down really well with our listeners in other parts of Canada. But that's what it's called, isn't it? Wearing, wearing either double or treble denim is a Toronto tuxedo. <laughs> treble, treble denim. He, I think he might have no, been. No, because no, his, his, his shirt was not denim. Jeans, denim shirt, denim jacket, Toronto tuxedo. It's what they wear to formal events. It was, uh, because when, when uh, Nicholas Nelkin was a player, you might have found this too um, at uh, any number of his clubs, he was one of those who's reticent to an extreme to do interviews. Yeah, yes, um, an unpleasant man. Yeah, and in the four years he was at City, I think I interviewed him maybe once or twice. Mm. And they were the kind of interview where he had done I mean, something so outstanding. First day and last day. <laughs> first day and last day. That goodbye. was when you were at Key 103, so there were literally dozens of fans listening. Literally, literally the entire fan base was listening to us. And, um, and it's one of those, it's like Chinch. Now, so all of a sudden, oh, yeah. chatty now, aren't you? Skulls. Skulls, yeah. Skulls is a joke. Chatty it's man. ridiculous. All these people giving Paul Skulls paid work. After 20 years refusing to talk to the media. Although he did talk to us, Steve, didn't he? Oh, I'm too shy. Oh, yeah, well, I'm too yeah, shy yeah. to talk to media, except after my career when I need the money. <laughs> me, me, Hugh and Scalzi go way back. I don't know what your problem is. Do you? Uh, is yeah, right? big mates. He says that he likes you. He's not, he's not sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, if your name is Paul Scholes or Nicholas Anelka, you can get in touch with the podcast if you feel like you have something to get off your chest, whether it is covered with single or double denim. Uh, you can do that via at Menu on Twitter, seppiesmenu on at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Search for Set Piece Menu. Now, lots of correspondence to catch up uh, on a range of subjects. Uh, we will save the injury ones until Chinch returns. Yeah, he's the expert. Funnily enough, not from injury. Uh, this email is about our two-part series on the modern football fan, 121-122, if you're just joining us. It comes from Chris Pesh. Hi, Andy, Hugh, Rory and Stephen. So, Hugh, Rory and Stephen. I've been in touch with you on Twitter before, but this is the first time I've decided to t- send you an email. In recent pods, there has been a discussion about who the proper or better supporters are, and some listeners have suggested that those who go to matches should clearly be seen as such. Now, I'm not going to argue against the many passionate supporters who dedicate a lot of energy, time and resources to supporting their clubs by travelling to games. However, I feel it has to be acknowledged that the match day experience can be very uncomfortable for some people. Just a few examples. The only time I've been to a Premier League game, Liverpool against Cardiff, I was harassed by multiple Liverpool supporters on the train journey back from the game. I went there to support Liverpool. The last time I went to see my favourite team, FC Köln, play, I was appalled by the constant racial abuse the Japanese player Yuya Osako was getting by his own supporters. Even at games of my local team here in Luxembourg, I have witnessed numerous incidents of outright racist remarks which did not get challenged by anyone but me, wanton harassment and scenes of violence. These memories make me so uncomfortable that the only games I still go to are those of the Luxembourg national team because one can enjoy them with the ironic detachment that only supporters of minnows can afford. I fear that the team's recent improvements, however, are going to ruin this for me too. 
I understand that people might question how much of a true supporter I really am if I can't take a bit of discomfort, but nobody would expect a theatre-goer or concert-goer to put up with the things one regularly witnesses at football grounds. Maybe I'm taking the easy way out, choosing to watch matches in the comfort of my own home, but for the love of the game, I cannot go to the grounds. All the best, Chris. No, you can't criticise that. If, if, I mean, obviously, it's ridiculous that people are made to feel uncomfortable for whatever reason in while watching football. I think you may be, you may be accept that it's not necessarily going to be the most comfortable comfortable environment in terms of the facilities or I guess I mean I, I'm always impressed when people take relatively young children as Steve does to football matches to say you know it, for a kid it must be quite a quite an intimidating situation but if yeah you, you, your your own sense of moral correctness is far more important than actually going to a football match of course yes it's really sad that he feels that way yeah. and I guess people have different thresholds for what they consider to be acceptable mm. so it's not to call upon judgment any of the particular incidents that he's highlighted because we haven't witnessed those for ourselves. If you are uncomfortable in an environment, then you're well within your rights not to place yourself in that environment and follow it in another way. That doesn't make you any less of a football fan. It just makes you a football fan who believes that their their interests in the game are best served somewhere other than than the stadium. Well, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting point, isn't it? It's not not one I considered before that say if you're a yeah. if you're a black football fan or an Asian football fan or a, or a gay football fan or, or someone who who is is from a group that could be a target for some sort of abuse, does it make you less of a fan if you decide you don't want to listen to that and don't go to the game? I don't think it does. It would be insane. Which, which again is another reason to say that that this delineation of match going fans better than everybody else is is wrong. I agree with Chris. And you would. I would imagine, Steve and Rory, when it comes to Ed's time to go to a football game, you would choose the, the ground, the environment, the game wisely because of the potential for them not having a particularly pleasant experience. Yeah, absolutely. You would be you, careful. You would not take... That. When we took my nieces and nephews to we took for, to, to the stadium of the team that they support for the first time, it was to a, a, vet, to a veterans game because we knew it would be a much more family-friendly environment. They wanted the experience of being in the stadium, but they didn't necessarily want to... You, or you wouldn't necessarily want to expose them to a kind of a really tense, hostile environment straight away. So it might, partly it might put them off and partly it might make them feel uncomfortable. Is Chris a jeunesse esh fan? Do we know? I d- he Did didn't he say. say. Chris, get in touch. They are my Luxembourgian team. With the podcast. Yeah. Location in the stadium with kids is quite an important thing as well. You avoid those parts of the ground where you know it's going to be a bit more rowdy than others and a bag full of snacks generally ah, yeah. <laughs> eases any other concerns. Yeah. If you hear swearing, don't worry, yeah. because he's got crisps. Um, next to a couple uh, of emails in response to SPM125 about Stadia and their effect on players, starting with John Wood, a name that regular listeners will remember, and he brings forth a missive that he himself will remember fondly for a long time for reasons to be revealed shortly. Now, hello, SPM, starts John. I just wanted to pick up on your discussion around KDB's comment regarding stadiums and home support. Kevin didn't work out well from that, did it? <laughs> it didn't, <laughs> didn't in the slightest. Although he didn't actually have to play in that game that ended no, that's up being true. Yeah. pivotal. Maybe he was intimidated. I thought it was, yes, he'd, be put in, he'd gone to see Pep and he said, listen, I'm really worried about this. I thought it was interesting that ahead of the Spurs City Champions League, yeah, by both legs, but particularly the second leg, Pep, Pep said the opposite, saying, at this stage, without supporters, we cannot go through. The fact that Pep, a renowned tactician who relentlessly seeks perfection, is seeking something so random and out of his control as atmosphere shows how important it can be when differentiating between equally matched teams. I think when the game is played at such a level uh, where a 1% or 2% gain can be the difference between winning and losing, or indeed a third VAR replay, the impact of a stadium with history... He didn't put that in. That was just me. Social commentary. The impact of a stadium with history and great fans can make a huge difference. Maybe these things in isolation will not have a major impact, hence Chinch not finding a stadium particularly intimidating. But if the occasion is big enough and the fans are in full voice in a stadium like Anfield, Old Trafford or St. James's Park, then professional or not, it must have an impact on how players play. Maybe a player who is intimidated by the atmosphere plays a pass sideways, where a home player goes for a killer through ball because he knows that he has a ground full of people behind him. It is probably not a conscious thought process, but that makes atmosphere in a great stadium all the more important. It is that tangible, it is that intangible that can lead to amazing footballing moments. Thanks, John. P.S. says John... As a fellow stadium porn enthusiast, I think he's speaking directly to me here, see Atlanta's Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Yes, he is. In the UK from July the 15th onwards, will I have to verify that I'm over 18 to look at these stadiums? <laughs> he says, if you know the news story, you know what we're talking about. John with that little whimsical we, postscript and of the- course the body of work as well. Congratulations. You are now a Buffalo. <laughs>
really weird that you chose to acknowledge that that news story's had so much effect on you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, have you had to get one of those sort of what what what, what those where you slingshot your uh, your internet signal okay, around? Okay, now stop. Steve. Anyway, <laughs> I also have correspondence. Oh, right. On the subject of home advantage, from renowned author and uh, hockey enthusiast <laughs> Jonathan Wilson. And by hockey enthusiast, I mean his own uh, hockey career, which he talks about endlessly. Hi, John. Glad you're listening. <laughs> field. Just field or ice? Field. Oh, field. If it was ice, the stories would be half decent. They're not the mind numbingly dull. Just, you just, uh, just, I can see you scrolling, scrolling He's past the hockey reports. Direct, the direct hockey message reports. on Twitter. Um, in which he pointed out that home advantage in cricket is enormously important. So I said that obviously in football there is there there it's is your a, theory is that it's, it's more important in football. Stephen, it? it is not my theory. It is it is fact. But I am willing to concede that in this one isolated case, my facts were not entirely complete, because that was a comparison with U.S. sports. Yes. So, in compared to U.S. sports, basketball, the one where they throw it, the hitty sticky one, and ice hockey, the the, <laughs> the other kind of hockey, the, John. Other, the other kind of hockey, the better the exciting kind of type of hockey. Um, they home advantage isn't quite as significant as football, and that is according to actual studies by people with brains, unlike me. But Wilson, so a theory, though. Wilson got in touch amongst a lot of other stuff to say <laughs> that home advantage in cricket is even more important. And for those of you not listening, cricket, <laughs> doodle it. Um, is it the hitty sticky thing? It's a hitty. It's like a, it's a like different a, hitty sticky. It's like a longer thing. hitty sticky thing. It's more interesting the moment, but it goes on for far too long. Um, the but yeah. So the point that Wilson's making is that that. It's not fair to say that home advantage in football... The football is unique in terms of home advantage counting. But what I would say is that what he's talking about, Jonathan Wilson, author, author of a million books, is the way they prepare the pitches in cricket, which is hugely important and does give you a massive advantage. So if you go to India, you don't get a pitch where, where yeah. the ball spins a lot more. If you go to the West Indies, they paint concrete green and it's really fast because that's what suits their bowlers. Which means that home advantage becomes crucial because the, the nature of the game changes almost. They, they paint concrete green and then they get someone out with a pneumatic drill <laughs> <laughs> and an inconvenient point on the pitch and break it all up again. Exactly. What we're talking about isn't, is, is a slightly different thing. And I've made this point to Jonathan. Basically, the conditions are the same. So the stadium might be smaller or bigger. The pitch might be slightly smaller or bigger. And the grass might be slightly longer or drier or slicker or whatever. But the basic conditions are the same. Whereas in cricket, the conditions themselves, the environment in which you're playing, that's what contributes to home advantage. What's odd about football is that home advantage can be so important, so much more important than, than basketball or baseball or wherever, um, when the basic conditions of the pitch are the same. And I think that's where you get into intangibles like crowd support and noise and atmosphere. Uh, we should also uh, give credit to Vikrant Singh, who sent an email in saying pretty much exactly oh, the right? same as Mr. Wilson. So thank you very much uh, to both. Um, just uh, we'll come to you in a second, Stephen, because this one is also related. And it's Sam Murdoch uh, in response to last week's pod. Dear Andy and others, so just others then, long time listener, first time caller slash emailer, says Sam, with reference to a point Rory made regarding foreign players not caring as much in derbies, a lot of Rory points getting taken to task yes. here. Uh, you were lazy. You did not lazy. triple source uh, your information. Um, with example, uh, the example given being Andre Gomez's lack of hatred for Liverpool, um, which I think you Theoretical did, think, lack of yes, hatred. You did as a hypothetical. Um, there are also international players who do feel the passion of a derby and thrive in it. See Matteo Guendouzi after Arsenal beat Tottenham 4-2. My question is whether there is a true feeling of passion and being one with the fans from the players or whether players use the opportunity to endear themselves to the fans through faux passion. Obviously, a player may do this to make their lives easier, what with all the social media abuse thrown about like confetti, but I would like to think that by associating yourself personally with a club and a derby, a player would have a heightened sense of enjoyment in playing and possibly enhance their performance that's from Sam. But I, I think that's more to do with kind of the atmosphere that the game has been played in and the players responding to that, mm. which definitely has an impact whatever nationality you are, rather than Matteo Duzzi in this example, thinking, oh, we really hate Tottenham, or that, as though he's been sat down by someone and it's been explained to them that Arsenal hate Tottenham. I, don't, I think basically it's one of these great lies of football. None of the players hate any other team particularly. I don't, and I don't think massively makes them... They might have personal grudges about, against other players and they might have bad experiences, I guess, of certain stadiums or whatever, but I don't think they... Other than the ones born in certain... So Wayne Rooney, it's fair to say, doesn't like Liverpool, but because he was an Everton fan growing up and played for Manchester United and then Everton again, I, 
I don't think the vast majority of players, in, wherever they're born, really feel the hatred or the passion the same way as fans do. So I think to an extent it probably is performative that they that they are doing it because they know that's that's how they feel they ought to behave after winning a derby. And the bit that isn't performative, I think, is probably that they have heard all the noise and all the songs and they've seen the social media and they can tell that everyone's up for it and that then changes A, the way they play yeah. and B, the way and they, they celebrate. They just react to, to their yeah. environment, don't they? Yeah, definitely the mood and the atmosphere around a club ahead of a derby is, is different. You you get that sense just from going down for press conferences or to, to speak to players before the games. And then, yeah, it, it, unless a footballer is constantly wearing the noise reduction headphones that they wear to get through a mix zone mm. unscathed for an entire week, they are going to pick up on that. But as we've discussed before, you cannot, as a fan expect an employee of the club who's maybe only been there for a year, 18 months, to have the same feeling about your arch rivals as you have cultivated over decades of support. Anyway, it looks looks to me like Andre Gomez hates Fulham more than anybody. (laughs) Well, that's obviously just performative because he knows about the huge rivalry between Everton and Fulham. Uh, Finally, thank you to both both Ross and John who emailed in about the black rings on the bottom of the post in the 1978 World Cup. You remember Chinch mentioned it. Uh, last week, there is an article that both um, that both uh, include a link to, uh, which we will post on our Twitter page. It's by David Forrest for the Guardian. It's from July 2017. Essentially, those uh, black paint rings around the bottom of the posts in the Argentina World Cup were an act of remembrance. Um, they were like black armbands commemorating all that had been kidnapped, murdered, or disappeared, um, as was the phrase during the time that Argentina were ruled by the military junta. Um, at the time uh, so we do recommend that you read that it's an excellent piece at set piece menu is where we will post it um, shortly after we post the pod uh, if you have any other emails uh, set piece menu at gmail.com talking of beautifully written articles <laughs> here's a quote from one to get us going with our subject today a 3-0 second leg quarterfinal victory over Manchester United features soccer's one great enduring constant Messi beaming, Barcelona winning, opponents left staring, hollow and glassy at a genius that defies belief. This is, at a rough estimate, the fourth iteration of Messi, the latest in a series of upgrades. Those are the words of the great Rory Smith of the New York Times. He goes on, does Rory, to explain how Lionel Messi does go on to explain how Lionel Messi has reinvented himself no less than three times. Now, before we get the Ronaldo truthers on our back, he's done it too, more than once, not least at Manchester United during a period that became one of Sir Alex Ferguson's team's many reinventions too. The link between all three, a sustained trophy-laden career and the claim that they were or are the best in their field. So as much as a team or a player can have longevity is the key to the ultimate success, the ability to reinvent oneself. Rory, would you like to quickly go through parts A to D of Messi's reinventions? So basically, when Messi comes through, he is a winner. And it's quite easy to forget that now, but he, he was a quite slight, very small, very quick Mullet-haired. M- terrible <laughs> hair, who wore the number 19, if we remember the fact yes. that Messi used to wear 19. Uh, and that's what we kind of... That, that's how we were first introduced to Messi, was this, this very, very talented goal-scoring winger who played on the wrong side, played on the right with the left when he's left-footed. He then was switched by Guardiola into the false nine. Part which, B. Which is part, part B of his, re- of his, of his kind of career path. They didn't invo- Barcelona didn't invent the false nine. Roma, in, in the modern game, invented the false nine with Francesco Totti under Spalletti, I think. They ran out stri- Roma ran out of strikers in like 2007 and he played Totti as... Just like in perpetuity. We just don't have enough. <laughs> just uh, like right now. So... Uh, he, Spalletti, I think it was Spalletti. Correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, played Totti as a, as a, but not really a false nine, but like an advanced ten, and that was where the where, where the idea came from. And then Guardiola gave Messi that that role, and I think that Messi then um, turned into basically a nine point five a little bit later on when, in the kind of MSN era when there was Suarez and Neymar knocking about as well. I think that Messi was was not so much a false nine as a striker, but one who who kind of played a little bit deeper than, than you'd expect a, a line leading number nine. Suarez and Neymar interchanged position with him constantly. And were often in advance of yeah. him. So he was kind of a nine and a ten all at once. And now I think Messi does what um, what you kind of imagined he always would do, which is he doesn't really have a position. He, he nominally starts up front. He spends the first few minutes of every game wandering about trying to work out where the weaknesses in the opposition defence are. And then when he's worked out where he thinks he can do most damage, he goes there. And Barcelona, Barcelona as a team are good enough and Valverde, the coach, is clever enough to say, right, what happens then is you all just 
flex slightly and change your position, adapt to where Messi is now. So if he's gone into a pocket of space on the left-hand side, maybe Suarez will, will come closer to him, will drift in, maybe Coutinho plays slightly further wide, maybe the midfield just shifts around or whatever to cover the spaces that Messi's leaving. But basically he is a player without a position and I think that is not quite a number 10. Does a number 10 plays in a specific role? There's a, a kind of patch of space almost designated for the classic kind of Ruby Costa number 10. Messi does something differently. He could go up front. He could go and say, right, I'm, I'm going to lead the line today. That's where I can do most damage. He could say, I'm going to play wide right because that's where I, I want to do the damage. He kind of has his, he has free reign and that is a testament to his ability to to maximise the damage he can do in whatever position he plays. And I think, to me, watching him now, that is the that is the mark of his greatness, is that he was probably the best winner in the world for a couple of years. He was almost certainly the best, the most devastating forward in the world for a few years. And now he is the best... He's not even a playmaker, he's more than that. He he, he defines the game. That's what... What Messi does defines every game he plays in. So, that is... the The fact that he's done that so many times that he's changed who he is essentially to get the most out of his abilities is is certain, maybe not the defining characteristic of his greatness but it's certainly a major trait is the great skill of the likes of Messi and Ronaldo the fact that we get really hung up on formations how is a team playing today Your team news comes out immediately press box well who's playing where how are they lining up Messi and Ronaldo, in many ways, render that, certainly in terms of the more attacking positions, irrelevant because they allow you fluidity mm. because of their versatility. And is, is versatility what ultimately makes a player genuinely world-class? Longevity and fluidity, that ability to adapt your game, not just through your own physical condition, but the, the way that the game and tactics develop during the span of your mm. career. We've seen there are plenty of players who have outstanding seasons or outstanding five years who would lay claim to world-class status. But ultimately, is it that ability to do it over 15 years within the fluctuations of the game during that span? What set you apart from, from what, what makes you know, greatness set, set apart from, from the very good? I don't know, because you wouldn't say that Maradona changed changed the way he played particularly at any point in his career. He he was a number 10. He was a pure 10 and did that from the time he was 17 to the time he was... Yeah, but I'd be interested... Banned for drugs. <laughs> I'd be interested to know when when team sheets were produced, which they probably won't, weren't in the in the way that we get them for the Champions League these days, where UEFA are told by the club or essentially guess um, what the formation of a team is. Yeah. Or and they're the, still wrong quite often. And they're still wrong. Or they're, they're briefed... Um, rather mischievously by a team who just wants it to be completely wrong. Um, and also the way that I imagine the television coverage back then wouldn't necessarily do formations in the same way no, with, I, with graphics that we do now. I think Where they, just, would list, they, they put, just listed them, didn't they? Yeah, I think they just listed them. Oh, no, them. that's not true. No, in, in 1990, I remember them doing formations. Well, it, so my dad would tell you that one of the curiosities of TV coverage for a long time, in, in fact, I think until the 1970s, was that every team was listed in 235. In Right. On TV, that that was assumed. That's what everyone. That just, was a, that was regardless. Yeah. That in the same way as it took us a, our generation a long time to catch up to the idea that people weren't playing four four two and that you had to change the way you presented teams. Initially, it was always the the, the way it was presented on the screen was you are playing two three. We, we're assuming that, that this is two three five, or not assuming it's two three five, but that was how football teams were presented. So I think they've always done formations. Steve's totally right. We as media and as fans get hung up on, on formations way too much and most managers will tell you that. But it helps, it helps us understand what, it, what we, if somebody says to us there's 11 players and do you know what eight of them are kind of going to do what they want that doesn't help us no. when we are being introduced to sometimes a team that we haven't seen before players that we haven't seen before we need structure we need a way in. It, so it is a shorthand to help everybody vaguely understand what might be about yeah. to happen that's all it is but managers will say that, that their team's playing one formation with the ball and mm. another, a totally different one without it um, I think increasingly in, in modern football, there are probably three or four stages in which there's a lot of fluidity between how teams... If you pause a TV, a, a sort of aerial TV shot at any point, very rarely, apart from a goal kick, to get teams in anything resembling a kind of easily transcribable formation. Mm. So, I, I mean, I think that, that fluidity generally is a is a feature of modern football. But it's a, but it, also the formation is is a way of sometimes, with all due respect to our fine broadcasters, 
um, that exist currently and have existed before, it is often them trying to simplify what they don't know will happen under the banner of we're doing it for the fans, when in fact they just don't know and they've got to do something. And so they have to guess. And quite a lot of the time, the intelligence or the technical kind of ability of a manager to organise his team in a certain way is not necessarily transferred down to those who are disseminating that information no, to not. the audience. And, but I mean, it's not a criticism of the broadcasters particularly. I think they have to... They've got to do or, something. They've you, got to do something. Or you, you've got to try and give some... some you've, got, you, you've got to try and give people an idea. Of what of what they might be about to watch, to give them a general guideline, and I think that I don't think fans sort of get angry when they, you know, a formation is presented as four two three one, and they, but within fifteen minutes they're thinking this is a four three three. But also, Chinch will tell you that if you do a formation, particularly on your graphic, before the game, and then you notice that it's something different, there will be a a sense of duty to try and still stick to that formation that you have told everybody even though mm. it might not necessarily yeah. be that because you are often yeah you're duty bound to to stick to what you said even though it's not necessarily right but if you watch Barcelona in, in possession they play 2-3-5 as do City with the ball you have two central defenders who tend to stick back in fact City's even weirder because the fullbacks come inside or Pep started in the, the, the drifting fullbacks again mm. so you kind of have two central defenders then you have basically a half-back line of three players, and then you have the two full-backs pushed right on and three forwards looking to, to make runs. That's how the elite teams play with the ball. They definitely do not play like that when they don't have the ball because <laughs> yeah. the players run around. As well and and again, there's, there's no graphic to stipulate that, for example, you play four when you haven't got the ball and you play three no, when you too, have got the be, ball. It would be too complicated. Too, too, too complicated, and it is the duty of the broadcasters to try and again disseminate that information in a way that is palatable yeah. but is often simplified we, we, where, this is slightly tangential but we're talking Steve about right. formation so let's go back to Steve's point about where, fluidity but where Steve is right is that if you look at the history of football in fact Jonathan Wilson's written a book about this I wouldn't recommend it the, um, <laughs> not the, judging by his contributions already to this podcast The initially football was very very sort of fixed and that everyone had a position and the fullback's job was to mark the winner and the winner's job was to beat the fullback and cross it. That there was no. If you watch games from that's the fifties, that's how Chinch describes it as well. Yeah. Even even into the early nineties, lasted, lasted a long, long time. That you, everything everything was kind of man to man almost. That if you and this is across, this isn't just an English thing. This is across the world. If that if you were the winner, your job was to beat the fullback, cross it. You you didn't get kind of winners drifting inside and linking the play. That wasn't their job. And fullbacks didn't sort of pick up strikers because that wasn't their job. It was everyone knew what their responsibilities were. It was an individualistic sport. Basically, the development of tactics over the last 30, 40 years, starting probably with the Dutch, I guess, or the Brazilians in 58, is the story of football becoming much more fluid. And I think in Messi and Ronaldo, although Ronaldo, I think we should do a little bit of a detour. I'm not we should sure talk about true. Ronaldo as well, shouldn't we? We'll, so we we'll, we'll do that separately anybody. rather than, than put them together. They are the, the apogee almost of what happens when you have players of extraordinary talent in a game that has become much more fluid. So they are now the, the representation of... of I guess the ultimate step, which is you have players who don't have positions. Although I think with Ronaldo, it's not entirely... Ronaldo's transformations, I think, are not as spectacular as Messi's. Steven. <laughs> well, Ronaldo fascinates me in terms of his, his physical capability and his mental aptitude to being phenomenal. Because obviously he was a winger at Manchester United to start with. Uh, wearing the number seven shirt, the... You know, seen as the heir to David Beckham, wasn't he? He was there to supply, to provide for his teammates. Ronaldo didn't score in his first 25 games in the Champions League, and now he's the competition's leading all-time scorer. That's a phenomenal acceleration of his contribution in terms of weight of goals in the Champions League from what was a very sluggish start because of the role that he was required to play. So almost through his, through willpower, he's turned himself from one thing into another that desire to be more heavily involved in you know writing the headlines i suppose contributing the goals the match winning moments the trophy winning moments rather than being part of that sort of trio of attacking players that was tevez rooney and ronaldo at the time when united were reaching champions league finals it just feels like for for ronaldo it was a conscious decision adapt to diversify whereas for Messi, and from reading your article, it feels like he has 
made those alterations. He's adapted to what's been going on around him. Ronaldo has dragged everything else with him. That Messi's versatility has been a factor of his environment. And so, uh, did did Messi change in those in those four iterations? Is it because he had to? Because play defenders had figured out what the previous iteration was doing, where it was going. Other managers had watched him so carefully that they figured out, and they were able to at least partially dilute his influence. Or is he being proactive, knowing that he needs to move before that happens? Or is it? essentially because of the players around him and things out of his control if you like players around him and managers wanting to do something with him to maximise his, that his influence I, it, to me it's it was Guardiola's decision basically to to make him a false nine well, I'm sure within with with consultation from Messi yeah sorry I didn't want to play no, no, down no, 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 no. Guardiola's contribution to, to that adaption but I think it's mainly that that, that it's become clear that there are ways he can hurt teams more, that he can get more out of his own ability, that he can do more damage in these differing roles. And it, it's almost a natural progression. Whereas Steve's right, there's a consciousness to what Ronaldo's done. And that's not to detract from it in, in the slightest, that Ronaldo has, particularly late on, with this sort of striker Ronaldo, where he doesn't really get involved in the game. He, he is there to, to score goals. That That seems to have been a conscious decision from him to partly extend his longevity because he probably couldn't have the same you know 33 he can't have the same kind of physical dynamism that he had at 25 which is fair enough um, although maybe he can well his, <laughs> Ronaldo's physical dynamism is greater than mine Hugh so I don't want to criticise him but the, he, he can't he can't provide the same energy as, as he did at 24-25 he's, he, he's now incredibly old fashioned yeah, he's he an old-fashioned number nine. He is the guy that contributes only when there is a final or two final touches to be applied. Yeah. He doesn't really and he do does it else. in an incredibly efficient and successful way. But it's funny to think how that he has gone from... Uh, I remember when he came on to make his debut for Manchester United within about 30 seconds, he'd completely bamboozled Andy Hunt, the right-back for Bolton, won a penalty... And everybody's like, who is this guy? Is just like this kind of blizzard of stepovers and, and long kind of ombre hair. And he was in this situation where he thought this guy is going to be kind of raking down wings for the next 15 years because he's 17 years old and this he is amazing. Like, he looked like Diggs. So, yes, exactly. And the fact that he has, he has developed himself physically to the point that actually he's regressed to playing in a way that a non-physical, a physical as in big, but non-athletic big number nine mm. would play... It's, it's a bit of an irony. But maybe that's the great trans- transformation for Ronaldo. The long-term one is that he's gone from a player who's, who was criticised for the complexity of everything he did, his inability to do things simp- simply, his refusal not to do step-overs. Rightly or wrongly criticised, but he the, was criticised The Rory Smith of five-a-side players. Absolutely, yes. Uh, that's harsh. Uh, <laughs> okay, con- the Conor McNamara. The Conor McNamara. <laughs> <laughs> um, to a player who, who is the ultimate in simplicity, that Ronaldo is one-touch goal one-touch goal. There is nothing else to Ronaldo. And, 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 again, not criticism. There isn't a vast amount else to Ronaldo's game at the moment. Messi has been more organic in his development, I think. Ronaldo is a... Is a you can make the case that Ronaldo transformed himself from a winner into a, an all-purpose, devastating forward. I wonder whether that was partly a reaction to the way the game was going, that Ferdi had Tevez and Rooney, so that was how Ronaldo fitted in. They weren't playing 4-4-2 anymore. They, they weren't even playing 4-2-3-1. It was we need all three of you to do kind of bits of everything. So you sometimes you'll go up front, sometimes you'll be on the left, sometimes on the right. You can interchange, you have that fluidity in position. I think that's that that's a development as a, from a young player finding a role that's maybe more suited to, to the, the full weight of his talents. And then there is this abrupt change at Madrid where he is, I'm a striker now. Where Ronaldo decides, I'm, I'm going to be a striker. This is I want to play centrally. You have to get the others out of my yeah. way. It's, I want to play centrally. Whereas Messi is very much like, all right, he's a winner because that's where he comes through. He's a false nine because that's where Guardiola thinks he can, he can get the most out of his talents. That then blossoms into this kind of this roving forward who plays across the front line and is kind of a striker and is kind of a you know kind of a ten and kind of a winner and everything, similar to Ronaldo, I guess, in that sense or the different interpretations. And then this final iteration where he is. You go where you like. Does we trust your your mm. game intelligence that you will work the, out where you can hurt that, them? That's interesting, actually. That the, the if there's any point at which their paths cross, it is iteration three of Messi, yeah. which is essentially play wherever you want across the front. Because if you if you look at Ronaldo, the only time that he well, particularly under Jose Mourinho, the time that he started any sort of uh, kind of transition centrally was when Real Madrid were breaking, and he would sit. Yeah. 
kind of about 15 yards away, centrally from the halfway line in their own half and then break. And he would be the guy that would then be the fulcrum of that counter-attack because he was so devastating and so quick. That that position was rare for him to take when when Real Madrid had possession of the ball. He would always seemingly be coming in from one side uh, to then end up centrally, which is where you're talking about Messi could have played one of those three positions uh, up front. So there is there is a small intersection there, uh, but they both started as wingers, I appreciate that. But but if they once they were kind of together on that trajectory together as being the best in the world, that's probably the time where they were playing that same position in completely different ways. I w- but I wonder if that was deliberate. I wonder if they, they both kind of, that there was a sufficient drive from both of them to, to be to be preeminent, to score the most goals, to be the most influential, to win the most trophies, that they both decided at the, roughly the same time, slightly different ages, but the same time, that that was yeah. what they had to do. Oh, the, they wouldn't have achieved what they've achieved without each other. Mm, definitely. They have been inspired by each other's careers. That, like that has to, like, Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. I don't yeah. know which is which. Who's to which? Inspired I mean, to mediocrity. Yes. But I'm in at least my seventh the iteration. <laughs> <laughs> the slightly overweight one. <laughs> so that's, that is another interesting factor in it when, when you have the, the Messi-Ronaldo debate. The other thing, that, a couple of other things we've not mentioned so far is that obviously Ronaldo is very nearly three years older than Messi. Yep. So when we're talking about, you know, the, the physical contribution, the, the effort that he's currently contributing to a game compared to Messi, well, it's perhaps not an entirely fair comparison. The other thing is we need to be careful of is that it's really easy to say, well, Messi had a God-given talent and Ronaldo has optimised what he had through his sheer willpower and physicality. Obviously, Messi must have elements of that mental strength as well to have survived at the top for as long as he has done. Because you mentioned Maradona earlier. I think it was sort of, in terms of his elite career in European football that lasted what nine or ten seasons I mean with, with all due respect to that year at Sevilla yeah, I mean, to be honest, talk, in terms of Napoli-Barcelona you're talking what, nine years yeah but even the, even Barcelona-Maradona is not the Maradona that we think of and I mean you can probably boil down like peak Maradona to five or six so, so bringing us back to this point of longevity being a big contributor to that idea of being world class because in, in Messi and Ronaldo you're talking about players who have been at the very top level for 15 years and counting yeah players can have great seasons or great spells but a, a bit like teams you know, and a bit like with with Alex Ferguson at United are you having to adapt every four or five seasons to stay relevant to stay at the top level yeah. and, and that is what is in, in many ways all the other things that we can talk about about Messi about Ronaldo that has been their greatest asset and that's, that's the point actually Rory when you um, invoked Diego Maradona you were talking about mm. the fact that you know the, the, these are great players who had um, slightly different aspects to their career one of the things that is slightly different as Steve mentioned is that the, the time that for example Maradona was at the forefront of the game was shorter is that because he didn't adapt apart from <laughs> off the field. With Maradona, it was very much the off the field so, stuff. But so, I think there's a, there is. If it had, it had would would that nine years have been, or, or five or six years, been ten, twelve years if he had dropped back into midfield, dropped back into midfield, or or found a way to be to reinvent himself in the same way that we are talking about Ronaldo and Messi? Is that is is that a, a, an argument that you could make? Yes, absolutely. It's, it's, it's something disregarding the off the field stuff, which obviously had a huge effect. It's something in. Messi and Ronaldo's favour when compared to Maradona, less so with Cruyff and even I mean even Pele. Does I mean I don't, I'm not quite sure how you describe where Pele played. Exactly. But when, when we were talking about formations, I was going to get onto that. If you because we talk about formations a lot now in players' positions because of things like Football Manager, which allows us yeah. to kind of think in those terms. And I always remember in the 90s playing Football Manager uh, and having Luis Enrique in the team, and yes. because he was so versatile, it basically just had defender slash midfielder slash forward slash left slash right slash centre because he he was so versatile. We we can't think of Messi. It's very hard to think of Messi and Ronaldo in these terms. Mm. Could we think of Pele and Maradona in those terms? Could well, you, with Pele, just say striker, centre? That's it. Maradona. What, what, well, you Mar- know, what Maradona would, you call would him? be in 
in football manager terms, would be AMC. He's a central attacking midfielder. He's a number 10. Maradona, that's all he... Or is it CAM now? I can't remember. Uh, I don't have time to play football manager anymore. <laughs> I, I couldn't even tell you. I'm sorry. The, so, do you want me to go and power up FIFA? We can work it out. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, let's wait for Hugh to go to work. <laughs> well, that's, that's, just one, one other thing about FIFA is that we, we were talking about players and, and supporting individuals over teams. There was somebody who tweeted at Set Piece Menu to say uh, that I was playing with my son and he was like playing with Messi and this is brilliant and it was the best player. He's the best player, isn't he? He said, no, because Pele is 95 on Classics FIFA. Oh, is that right? So yeah, Pele is still the highest. <laughs> but the I, highest I, don't know, I don't know whether you'd call Pele a striker or an attacking midfielder or both. I think you probably would call him both, wouldn't you? Pele was not, he wasn't a, he wasn't a number 10 in the way that we think of Maradona as a 10, but equally, equally he wasn't a 9 in the way that Romario was a 9. Can, or, can anybody retrospectively go through Pele's career, please, and uh, come together with his average position well, heat map? If, that would be really, really helpful. If we have any listeners who are old enough to remember, um, and given that I still have to explain to my dad that a podcast is a radio show but on the internet, the, um, I think it's probably unlikely. But if we've got anyone who remembers watching Pele play, because the thing is that from highlights and even from the footage that you get of games in that era, it's really hard to tell what... You only get the final four or five seconds, don't you? Well, yeah, you and also you, get... you know that the winners are the winners. You know, you know that Derincha played wide hmm. and you know that Jazzinho played wide and Rivellino and all this. But it's really, with the central players, it's hard to tell what they're actually... So I, thi- I think of Pele as a 10 because he wore 10. And did he play that position the whole time through his life? And That's in, the question we're asking and about in whether he changed slightly. Which was when he kind of was there in full glorious technicolor. Tostau was the striker. So by that stage, Pele probably was a 10. But before that, was given his goal record, although that obviously counts goals in his garden, <laughs> but was he... <laughs> Against his dog. <laughs> one six nil today, everyone. <laughs> another six for the, <laughs> for the record no. Whoever Whoever's archiving my yeah. goals count, add another six. Um, I'm like I, a thousand I, and I'm I 12 wonder, years old. I wonder when he was a striker, when he was younger, whether he was, a, he was more of what we would think of as a striker. So in but 58, then, in 58 but, when yeah. he was 17 years old, was he just a striker? But then positions were different. So, I mean, it, oh, would he have been an inside forward? Is that how the... It, it's, really, it's really hard. Jonathan Wilson might be able to tell us, actually, to be fair, we haven't alienated him completely <laughs> yeah. with, by slagging him. His, three, his three terrible he's already story. deleted your number yes, from exactly. his phone. Three strikes in your hour, Jonathan. <laughs> um, but the th- yeah, inter- Beckenbauer who never gets mentioned in that conversation because he was more defensive. Beckenbauer, I think, played more than one position over the, over the, the time of, of his career. I think he played in midfield and defence and as a sweeper. Um, if we have any German listeners, maybe they could enlighten me as to whether I'm wrong on that, but that's how I envisage Beckenbauer. Cruyff obviously played in a much more fluid system than most players of his era, so he played in lots of different positions. But I think, certainly for, for Messi and Ronaldo, the longevity is and the versatility. But the other thing that's crucial with them is the intensity. So all of these players, Maradona, Pelé, Beckenbauer, Cruyff, all the greats, best. They were playing in an era when, all right, it was more physically, more, more likely to get injured, but where the, the stage on which you expressed your greatness was the World Cup, which happens once every four years, or the Euros, which happens once every four years. So that's a tournament every two years. Or the Copa America, I suppose, which then was held not every three, three or four weeks like it is now. <laughs> um, and the European Cup wasn't nearly as significant as the Champions League is. Just Messi, fewer games. That's yeah. The, the Messi and Ronaldo... Easy have been doing it on the Champions League against their peers, against the best teams in the world, every week for 15 years. That is insane. Mm. That, that, so I think it's really hard, and it, I hate the conversation, but I think when we come back to look, come to look back on it, that, w- that might be the thing that flips it. Even, even if neither, neither ever wins the World Cup, and Ronaldo obviously won the Euros as manager, but um, <laughs> the... The, uh, that isn't as relevant now. What's relevant is that they have done it in the Champions League on our TV screens every week, all season long, for 15 years. And we can verify the scoring stats as well, which, yeah. is, uh, which is important. Yeah. And, and, and putting up the numbers is ultimately down to longevity. And yeah. that is, you can't put up the numbers if you only have a couple of great seasons. Yeah. You, you, you know, Gonzalo Higuain, 36 goals in a Serie A campaign, phenomenal. But he's not got close to it. No. either side of that achievement yeah. and, and that ability to, to respond to the demand to deliver time and again over such a long period of time well Salah who, Salah had a, had a mess in Ronaldo season last season and has now had a really good season where he's got 18, 19, 20 goals or something which is more than respectable yep. still, still an, excellent, an excellent kind of return but it, it kind of highlights how difficult it is mm. to do what Messi and Ronaldo have done over all that time and perhaps that it, the fact they've been able to do that is because they keep morphing into slightly different versions of themselves that keeps as you said right at the start 
that keeps defenders and opposing managers on their toes because you're not facing the Ronaldo now that you faced five or ten years ago and you're not facing the Messi now that you faced five or ten years ago. They keep changing and that is the mark of their greatness. And one of the funny things about them continually putting up the numbers and being so successful so consistently is that sometimes you forget about how good they are because they are so consistently good. So, for example, in the, the Ballon d'Or voting, I think Messi was only fifth something like that and yeah, he the, scored the, more goals than, than any other yeah, of I, those and I know it's just not about goals but when Messi only scores 45 and not 55 yeah. such is our expectations of him that we almost disregard that as a lost season because Lionel Messi didn't do what uh, didn't do something new so yeah. for example Mo Salah g- gets nominated and wins quite a lot of awards when statistically and con- in terms of contributing to trophy campaigns it wasn't nearly as good as Messi. No. And I think quite a lot of Barcelona fans, pundits, you know, they, they say, what? Just because he's just as good as last year when he was the best doesn't necessarily mean that he has not yeah. been as good. Yeah. Uh, and so we should probably remember that sometimes when we feel like we're fatigued by yeah, Ronaldo the, and Messi. The, the Catalan papers are still quite upset about that. They've got this thing about how Messi's the only one of the... I think he came sixth in the Ballon d'Or and he's, the only, one, he's the only one left. In the in the Champions League, does Modric obviously won it, and deservedly, does Modric won the Champions League and got to the World Cup final with Croatia? So that Modric was a deserving. This idea that oh, it's ridiculous, Messi didn't win the Ballon d'Or yeah. is stupid because and Modric isn't going to score fifty goals a season. No, that's not his job. But Modric had as good a basically as good a season as it was. He had a dream season at thirty three and carried Croatia. Well, not carried, but you know, was a major part of Croatia getting to the, to the World Cup. It's Croatia. Yeah. Just and the World Cup finest. <laughs> so the idea that it's ridiculous that that he won it ahead of Messi is—I mean, I, I agree with your point completely. And but that's individual awards are weird because yeah. they people vote, or people have different criteria of for what they're kind of handing it out for. I think the Ballon d'Or should should be a reflection of who's kind of had the best season. So I think Modric or Rafa Varane would have been perfectly sensible because they both achieved the same thing. Third, Dejan Lovren. The, um, <laughs> the uh, and everybody else after that. And, Fine. and yes, just what is it on the horse racing betting? Yeah, four to one bar. Yeah, and exactly. Everybody yeah, yeah. else. But the, bar. the other thing about Messi and, and versatility that we should probably just mention is that there are a lot of players who later in their career turn into something else. So Ryan Gibbs is a great example that Gibbs was a flying winner who then, when he turned, what, 30? Two thirty-three. Suddenly, thought right to keep myself going. I'm going to have to be a, a central, essentially a central midfielder. Even a little bit later. Possibly later. Yeah, oh, you didn't finish until he was about seventy. Didn't <laughs> yeah, he, so. when he was forty. When he's forty. So he yeah, thirty-five, thirty-six, yeah. maybe. Strolls as well. Who both of whom have had a mention previously on this podcast. Adapted, became something else. You have quite a lot of players who 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 drop back into the, into defence yeah. from midfield. That's not unusual. John Barnes was a winger and Barnes ended up a as a defensive midfielder, yeah. spraying the ball about. But that comes back around the, the mentality thing. Whether it's driven by self, by you know Ronaldo, driven by environment in terms of wanting to be great with the club that you have been with your entire career for Messi, or whether it is those Manchester United players that you've just mentioned who had to adapt to survive mm. in an environment where they were constantly changing, constantly moving forward. Those, those are the, the things that tie those players together. There are footballing cycles, aren't there? Whether that's for players or whether that's for teams. And you have to be able to adapt to survive. And we haven't yet mentioned fully, um, for example, the teams of Manchester United under Sir Alex Ferguson because it was it was something before Messi and Ronaldo became all about uh, you know, transforming themselves and, and being versatile and having different iterations over their career. The, the, kind of the, the, uh, the mark of Sir Alex Ferguson's genius was to be able to morph his team, recreate his team, not only tactically to reflect what was going on around them, um, but also the fact that he realised that players were getting too old and he needed to recycle them as well. The, the, the first team that he wasn't particularly successful with because they were kind of old-fashioned and famously drank too much, got rid of them, um, won, the, won the cup and his first league with those that replaced them, with the Bruce, the Pallister and everybody and the Robsons. Then you've got the the team that came through in the mid '90s, which were the um, the Youth Cup winning side, uh, class of '92. Then you eventually had to replace them, and he 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 realised that he 
had to do that in the early 2000s and it was the Ronaldo and Rooney years. Um, and then he also had to uh, to change tactically, which is why he brought Carlos Quiros in to, to kind of have a little bit more now about European football and how to play 4-5-1 or 4-3-3 and play on the counter-attack because that was the best way of using their resources. So this is this is a manager who managed to do it over and over again because he had to, because his resources were changing, because the game was changing and because he didn't want to retire. Yeah. <laughs> so he, but he that, had to do something. I think with Ferdy that's accepted, isn't it? That The thing that kind of separates Ferdy from everybody else is not just the, the sheer trophy tally it's the fact that he did it in so many different eras with so many different teams while staying in place that there was no kind of it's not that it's easy to be a Mourinho or a Guardiola or even I guess even a Klopp and you and you take a challenge on you build the team you you complete your project and then you move on and then you do the same thing to break a team down and then build it up again to break it and again and again and again is is you don't get that. Yes, you don't get that clean slate. It's still your voice. The environment is still the same. You could go stale. You're fighting off all those forces. I think it's accepted with um, with Verdi that, that that is the thing that marks him out. With Messi and Ronaldo, I think what's really impressive is that they've had those that awareness as players, which most players I, th- I suspect don't ever have, or certainly don't have the talent to pull it off. And they've done it when they're young. Gids, it was easy for Gids at 35 to think, right, I'll play midfield now, or John Barnes, or even Strolls, who dropped deeper and deeper and deeper. To, for for someone who's 25 to be like right well I've got to change th- th- yeah. this is where I can be most effective suggests a, not just a heightened level of ability but a heightened, heightened awareness of those abilities that's really special I think we managed to have a long conversation about Messi and Ronaldo without offending Messi or Ronaldo acolytes we have given I'm them sure both we have. Oh, they'll find, equal dues and uh, sensible consideration uh, equal time no we're going to get they'll uh, be a way of get harangued there'll be a way of Cutting, it, cutting yeah. and splicing what that discussion and turning it into a rant. damnation of one yeah. or the other, won't it? <laughs> Anti-messy rant. Yes, exactly. Before we go, it's time for Nevermind Jack and Ori. What a new kind of soccer story. This is when a listener tells us a tale from their playing days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. It comes from Richard Gibbon. Okay. Hi, all. During episode 120, you shared the suggestion that nobody would dare tackle George Weyer now that he is president of Liberia. I'm not sure I'd get close enough to him anyway, but it did remind me of a tale from my own footballing life. Really beautiful way to set up mm, a sensational my, soccer that made story. The, my fo- my emails with the subject, my footballing life, please. That could work, yeah. In 2008, my football team went to Lithuania to play a couple of local teams and, rather oddly, the Lithuanian Ministry of Foreign Affairs. The oddness escalated as we found out that Petras Vaitikunas, the Lithuanian Foreign Secretary, was going to be playing against us. Obviously, we were under orders to be on our very best behaviour. No big tackles, no questioning the ref, and generally nothing that might risk upsetting our esteemed opponent. As some of the team had been making the most of a local nightclub called Prospecto, we were some small tweaks to our usual lineup. The manager put me, a limited, slow centre-half, at left-back. Normally, emails to SPM seem to have a better chance of being read out if they contain a slide dig at Chinch, and this might feel like a natural point for one. I can't do that, though, as I found playing fullback tortuously difficult, says Richard. I felt lost and confused, and with my confidence diminishing, swiftly lost the ability to pass, run, tackle, and even communicate. I was delighted when, 20 minutes in, I was subbed off. I settled in to watch the match, and knowing that I'd be starting the second half, downed a dubious energy drink in a yellow can that looked like it would either kill me or cure me. Having seen I wasn't up to playing fullback, and as demand to play as one of our non-running centre-backs was high, I was placed on the left wing. Now, I should have been worse there than I was further back, but somehow I found it in me to have the half of my life. What's the energy drink? I pinged passes, I whipped crosses, and I was beating men for fun. Everything was going brilliantly. Then there was an incident. The ball was crossed from the right, but carried through to my side, where it settled in the poorly maintained grass, roughly equidistant between me and Mr. Vaitikunas. The pitch had a slight slope, and the long grass had some lingering dew. So when I set off to win the ball, momentum was in my favour. If I'd had a moment to think at the time, I probably would have realised I didn't need to go to ground. But g'd up by my performance, and full of taurine, I launched myself into the tackle. The foreign secretary did the same. We crunched into each other. He yelped. The ball ricocheted in field. I was still standing, terrified over the prone dignitary as a teammate crossed the ball. I was still patting him ineffectually as our striker rose to head home and then still apologising as I left him on the ground to take my position for kickoff. <laughs> he limped off the pitch and didn't reappear. 
After the game, as the team held a small inquest into what had happened, I laid all responsibility at the door of the fizzy concoction I'd necked. It made me a fantastic winger, but at what cost? (laughs) (laughs) Our local contact asked what drink it was, and I showed him the can emblazoned with the name Dynamite. He laughed and said that he knew what had happened, but was unable to remember the word he needed. He promised to look it up for me when we met in the pub later. When I arrived, he made a beeline for me, and with his strong Eastern European accent, enthusiastically shouted, Aha, Richard, aphrodisiac! (laughs) (laughs) Apparently, the rather stiff tackle was a result of some additional properties this drink was supposed to have, and that's how I got really horny and nearly caused a diplomatic incident. Not sure it quite meets the all-adult content removed requirements of Chinch's soccer stories, but I rarely miss an opportunity to tell it. To tell it. Cheers, Richard. It's not often we applaud on the podcast. Well done. That's twice today. That is twice today. If you have a soccer story, and our expectations have been raised massively, uh, please do send them to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. You can also get in touch via Twitter or Facebook. Please subscribe, share, rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Uh, thank you to Roy, to Stephen uh, and to you all for listening. We'll be back with another set piece many for you to enjoy very soon indeed. Do you remember that game we played at, I think, Hyde United? Yes. Did you play in that? Uh, I didn't, no. But me and Steve did. Yes, and Connor we did. Played, yes. And we played against a team of kind of... Brookside. Brookside it was Coronation Street and Hollyoaks. That was it. Including Ricky Whittle who is now in American Gods and is quite famous. Yes, yes, he yes, played yes, that game, that's right, he did, yeah. Um, and also the the guy who ran the nightclub in Hollyoaks, who had just left Hollyoaks to, to make a career in LA. And, uh, I think he's now back in Hollyoaks. <laughs> who I think is now back in Hollyoaks. But I rem- remember marking him at a corner and saying, Hollywood move not going well then. And <laughs> <laughs> is it, did you get a swift elbow to the face? No, but I did. Do you, do you remember Newt from Hollyoaks, the, the goth kit yes, in Hollyoaks? Yes, yes. I had a running war of words with him. <laughs> Which which involved several major swear words and at least two or three fairly fairly he was a good player fairly hefty tackles, but he we properly uh, there was a point where I thought he might hit me. We won that game. No, we didn't. We lost. We lost eight to two, Steve. (laughs) Uh, Maybe that. Maybe well. I I I remember because I scored the 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 second of the two. I think I definitely played in a game against Coronation Street and Hollyoaks that that was won by a team of local media, which was quite extraordinary. It was yeah. D- D- uh, Ricky Whittle was also in uh, Dream Team, wasn't he? He actually did some football acting. I think. Oh, possibly. Or, yeah. or footballs wide. I think he was quite a player. I think that they they were actually quite good. Well, yeah, but they they're generally younger and fitter than and, us. Yes. And they spend pretty much all of their time that they're not on set playing charity football yeah. games. Yeah. Whereas yeah. we spend yeah. an awful lot of our time in press rooms eating food <laughs> that yeah. isn't exactly conducive to an athletic career. I would say that there are more sandwiches in our lives than there are in theirs. Yep. Yeah. Uh, Newt was played by Nico Miralegro. That's right. Oh well, there Did you, you go. Even know foreign his name foreign ringer. I found out his. <laughs> I found out his name later on, after I called him. A <laughs> <laughs>